you know, they're not savages, right? They haven't degraded, <laughs> uh, digressed, degraded. That's not what I mean to say. Regressed. Devolved. Devolved or regressed <laughs> rather than trying to combine those words. Welcome back, friends, relatives, wonderful listeners. We know we've got people from all categories out there who are wonderful week-to-week listeners of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all. Yes, thank you for tuning back in. It means a lot to be able to have these conversations with each other and with all of you out there. So thanks for tuning back into another podcast. Yeah, we were early in our most recent season, season six. It's exciting to be this deep into our podcast, to be in the sixth season, but to simultaneously be this early in the season. There's this sense of accomplishment at being so deep, but anticipation of the season to come. We've got what might be one of my one of those seasons that I'm more excited about in terms of the variety, the incredible some of just the incredible scripts we're going to talk about. We've got a fun themed month plan that we'll start to tease in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be a great season. It already has been in terms of the incredible scripts and the incredible diversity. And today is is no exception to that war path of how different can we make the first large chunk of these episodes as we're kind of coming <laughs> on a, a play that experiments with form a little bit, that, that experiments with storytelling. It's going to be a fun conversation today. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm excited. I, I, as, as you said, I, like I've, I'm for sure I've added three or four playwrights to my library for the start of the season, and this was one of those plays. Uh, today we are going to be talking about Mr. Burns by Anne Washburn. Yeah, Mr. Burns. A lot of times you'll see it appear with its subtitle in the lexicon of theater language. Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, and, yeah. and this is a play that has floated around in the ether of my theater landscape for a long time. I I know that I heard about it first many, many years ago and knew that it existed, knew that it was a play a lot of people were talking about, and I just never had the chance to really engage with it. Where I lived, there weren't any productions of it. I didn't have a great excuse to read it amongst all the other plays that I was reading. So when when we were planning our programming for this season, I really, really wanted to talk about this play because I was so excited to finally get my hands on it and see what all the fuss was about. And boy, howdy. Is it an interesting script? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it turns a lot of things on its head, plays with form, as you said, really interestingly, and uh, kind of introduces new concepts along with familiar concepts. So I am, I'm definitely excited to get to talk about it today. Um, b- before we jump into the conversation, though, I do want to take just a second and say thank you to all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of making this show happen. Um, Y'all have probably heard this before. We love doing this show. This is a great show. I said it at the top, and I'll say it again. We love getting to have these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in podcast land. Um, it's not a free show. However, we do have some costs associated with with the show, with the hosting and the scripts and the time and 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 the 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 effort in in running a podcast. So our, our patrons over on Patreon.com/slash No Script Podcast help out with that a lot. If you go over there, you'll see there's a couple of different tiers of membership at that lowest kind of $1 amount that still helps 
helping out the show a lot. You get access to patron-only posts and get to be a part of the community over there. The $5 amount will say your name on the show from time to time. And uh, and uh, yeah, so that, that's a great way if you're looking to uh, invest in the community, become a, a, uh, a, a contributing part of the community in that way. And uh, we, we just want to say thanks to all those who have already made that decision. And if you're looking for a way to do it, head over to patreon.com slash podcast. We'll see you over there. And now, back to the script. Here we go. All right. Ann Washburn, new playwright to the podcast. Uh, I may be remembering falsely, but I think so far we've done nothing but new playwrights, which is a fun part yeah. of this season six adventure that we're on. That won't hold true for the whole season, of course. we got a lot of great plays to talk about from playwrights that we're returning to. But so far, that's been, that's been really fun. Ann Washburn is a New York City playwright. She's kind of a... A champion, if you will, of scrappy, independent, awesome little theater is kind of her personality, her her interviewing style, her the places that she likes to to be involved with. The Civilians Group, which is a group that she's a, a member of, is a great example of that. But that doesn't mean that she has not had productions at some pretty big places: Actors Theater of Louisville, American Repertory Theater, Soho Rep, Playwrights Horizon, The Guthrie. These are places that have done Anne Washburn's plays and so many other theaters besides that. She's a new dramatist alumni. She's a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, a Time Warner Fellowship. She was a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Award for her play Shipwreck. She's uh, a, a lot of the, uh, at least one or two of the awards that she has received are kind of aimed at mid career artists. So she's an artist who's really established her voice on the scene. She does these kind of incredibly poetic, highly, you know, there's a high level of commentary, really interesting characters. She does a great interview where she talks about how she thinks of theater as, as really being the intersection of this sort of societal, personal, um, political world and that theater that, you know, leaves one of those out is not a full kind of theater. I'm, I'm misquoting her, so I apologize, Anne, but that's my memory of the interview that I read. So really interesting playwright. She's got a couple of other really interesting plays out. I think one called 10 for 12, which is kind of making the rounds as a fairly popular play. So really interesting playwright. This play began uh, as an experiment, really, with actors from The Civilians, uh, which is sort of an investigative experimental theater troupe in New York City. And she tells a very funny story about how this this play started in a basement bank vault. Apparently, in New York City, at the time of the writing of the play, that was one of, like, the open rehearsal spaces, was just this sort of big, empty bank vault in the basement of a bank. And so she and some actors from Civilians got together in the basement, and she knew that she wanted to write a play about how pop culture might evolve in a post-apocalyptic world. And she had she had played with a couple of different uh, pop culture references to use. She thought pretty seriously about using Cheers or Friends, you know, something that a lot of people would remember really distinctly. She ended up going with The Simpsons. So she, she brought this group of actors to this basement bank vault, spent a week kind of playing with that idea. One of the things she did was ask them as a group to try to remember, very specifically remember, scene for scene, line for line, as much as they could, uh, a Simpsons episode. They ended up talking about the Simpsons episode Cape Fury, which is a great famous Simpsons uh, episode includes one of the many uh, you know, Guilford and Sullivan kind of big musical numbers and things like that. Um, and, and so some of the dialogue that's in Act 1 of this piece, which actually will describe what happens, is taken pretty directly from those experimental forms. 
Um, the play is a recipient of the 2015 Whitting Award. It premiered in 2012 at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in D.C., great theater in D.C., had its New York debut at Playwrights Horizon in 2013, transferred to London and played in 2014 at the Almeida Theater, um, and then lots of regional houses, Capitol Stage in Sacramento, the RS Theatrics in St. Louis, Belvoir and State Theater Company, which is in Australia in 2017. Interestingly, I've found that lots of high schools are doing this play, which I think is, is is really fun. I mean, it, it is a great play for high schools in that it's got a decent-sized cast, the language is relatively mild, it's fairly meaty content, but it's an interesting play for high schools in that its references might might be something that a lot of high schoolers wouldn't have a lot of access to in The Simpsons, um, but also that it, it's a, you know, it's kind of an experimental type of play. So I think that's fun and really important probably for high schools to expose their students to a whole variety of theater, not just uh, big old-fashioned musicals and funny comedies like Arsenic and Old Lace or whatever, you know, and those are all great, (laughs) but it's fun to see that high schoolers are doing this kind of show too. Um, The original script, the 2012 Woolly Mammoth, the NYC Player at Horizon, had an original score by Michael Friedman. And then when it transferred to the Almeida Theater in London, there was a new a cappella score developed by Orlando Gao. It's a little bit unclear to me um, how a company whether they're intended to develop their own score, if they're intended to use one of these initial scores that were developed and what that partnership might look like. Because the third act is a musical, as Jackson will describe. So there's a music requirement to do the show for sure. I think that's probably all I can say without delving too far into synopsis. So I'll pass (laughs) that over to you. Yeah, I'm intrigued to kind of come back to that later, the kind of musical aspect of the of the last act. Um, this is a three-act play. Um, the, the the acts and each act um is a distinct moment in time. Um the 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 uh, kind of pre-notes in my script say the play is set in the very near future, then seven years after that, then seventy-five years after that. So act one is now-ish. Um, That's kind of uh, like saying the present, though, isn't it? The very near future. <laughs> what did that mean in 2012? Like right. 2020? Well, that's past now. That's, that's past now. <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, I'm just playing. It's great. Right, right. <laughs> but but the, the play takes place over, yeah, 80-some uh, years um, and, and invites you into the perspective that you get after those 80-some years. Because the first act of the play takes place in, um, like, an outdoor setting of some sort. The There's woods, these characters. Yeah. Like a clearing? Yeah, I imagine a clearing. I imagine woods. There's probably a road somewhere nearby, but it's not on set. Um, outdoors, uh, early October is the setting of it. There's a fire, and these uh, five characters are all sitting around this fire. And uh, they're, the, they're, the, the, the characters are, are Gibson, Matt, Jenny, uh, Maria, and Sam. Uh, those are the ones that are around the fire. And then there's also Colleen, who's this character who's kind of off a little way. She's not a part of the group for the – or a part of the speaking group or the close group for the start of it. And this group is is uh, pretty much right off the bat. They're talking through a Simpsons a Simpsons episode. And it's the, the it's the Cape Fear episode or the, the one inspired by Cape Fear. And, Cape uh, Fury. And Cape Fury, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a funny name. That's a pretty – It is. It's a good Simpsons name. 
Yeah, yeah, and and they're they're kind of talking it through. That just they're all kind of communally reminiscing about this episode, filling in details, filling in plot lines, and so and such. Um, and and the the whole group is kind of remembering it together. You're just kind of getting to know the dynamic of the group. The thing that kind of sets you off that there's something different happening is at one point uh, one of the characters hears something in the woods, and they all stop and they're all they all freeze and and kind of looking off into the woods, and they're not sure what's happening. And eventually they move back to their conversation. Uh, another bit bit of time passes. They're they're talking through the 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 episode, and then they 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 all stop this conversation. One of the characters kind of points to an area of the woods, and then they all draw weapons um, and are on high alert. And you start to figure out that there's something there's something different happening in in this scene. And uh, uh, another character comes on. Gibson comes on, and he's a traveler. Um, he has a pack. They they kind of frisk him. They 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 figure out who he is, and we begin to find out that this is kind of a post disaster world um i believe right, because I've, it goes from them sort of sitting at a camp what could be a campfire on some odd furniture but okay whatever uh, but they're telling the simpsons episode story okay that's kind of weird and then when you hear when you, gibson finally makes his entrance everybody draws weapons so there's yeah. that moment of oh we're in a little bit of a different situation than it <laughs> yeah. initially seemed Right, yeah, certainly different than we were expecting, and we find out uh, different than than our world is. Um, this is, uh, I believe, through the events uh, the, or the the descriptions of the this event in the play, we're we're, we're meant to uh, infer that this is a, a, a nuclear meltdown, a, a massive nuclear meltdown. Many plants going down, the whole grid goes down. There's no more power, and what happens in this scene? You know, you you do this you do this first scene for a while. Um, they're they're talking about this episode, and then they all take out notebooks when this new guy shows up and they all start trading names back and forth with e- with each other trying to figure out if anyone has seen anyone that they knew <laughs> um, and and this is the way that news is traveling in, in this world I've watched a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff and that's one of the more I think on point um, uh, painful poignant really interesting takes on a post-apocalyptic world that everybody yeah. keeps notebooks of everybody they've come across, every single person by name and age, so that when they meet strangers, they can all ex- exchange all this information and try to figure out who's seen who, is this person still alive, where are they? I mean, that is a really, really good moment. Absolutely. It's this kind of like gut-wrenching and and very, uh, you know, world-building choice. Uh, yeah, a- a excellent moment there. Gibson joins them for the night. Um, and uh, find they find out that he uh, he knows the Simpsons too to some degree. Um, and uh, and if you if you know the Camp Fury episode, there's a a big song number as Jacob said in it. And Gibson can also sing the song from like what whatever the Gilbert and Sullivan play was. Um, the HMS Pinafore, that the, the eternal pinafore. nonsense Pinafore. <laughs> yep. So so they they kind of pass the night together. Um, that's the and that's the end of Act One essentially. There's some there's some more details in there that we'll suss out later, but that's the big, the, the, the broad stroke of Act 1. Act 2 is seven years later, and this group of people have uh, not only picked, uh, uh, Gibson has stayed with them, they've picked up another character named Quincy, and seven years later, they've formed an acting company. 
And this acting company, we learn, is a part of a system of acting companies that travels around in this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape and does episodes of TV shows. Um, we, we know that many of the episodes of, of The Simpsons are, are, are big in, in, these, in these traveling companies. We learn that The West Wing is a very big uh, show in, in these That's traveling awesome. companies. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and so we, we, we join this group of people as they are rehearsing, um, they, they have the rights to this particular episode and they're rehearsing the Camp Fury episode. Yeah. There are a, uh, they're, they're a Simpsons specific company. That's what they do is yeah. buy the rights. I don't know what that means in a post-apocalyptic world, but they right. purchase the, the rights, rights to episodes <laughs> and they get to recreate like stage versions of the Simpsons episodes, but they don't have the scripts. Right. So it's all memory-based. They're all coming up with the scripts uh, from their memory. They're buying lines from people who say they remember parts of the show. Really interesting kind of economy in there. Um, they're also doing ads, though, and that's a fairly important part of it, is they're doing these uh, commercials between, like, commercial breaks between the the, the episodes. So so we, we pick up the this act with them rehearsing a commercial. Um, and it's just this this kind of fascinating longing for for the old world and kind of piecing together pieces of themselves. The play, I'm just going to broad sweep this act. It's a it's a rehearsal, right? They they uh, they're rehearsing it. They're going through all the the kind of foibles of how do you you know get a fire or a t- get a TV playing a, a like static or or something on the TV. They're finding mirrors to try to get candles to project the light and all that. The act ends after this big rehearsal with people breaking into their rehearsal space, armed people, shots are fired, and rather abruptly, the act ends in somewhat chaos. Act three is 75 years after that. And act three is... Let's say that again. (laughs) 75 years later. Awesome. Yep, absolutely. And we get the sense that uh, society has uh, stayed around. That's, we're still we're watching a play now. I would think a, a kind of fully scaled play, as Jacob said, a musical. Um, and this musical is the Camp Fury episode, and yet it's not. There's some there's like extra interpretation thrown on it. You can see that after 75 years, um, there's less focus on nostalgia, just straight nostalgia, and a little bit more of a commentary on on the disaster itself finds its way into the into the uh, the the script and into the play you uh see uh, some character names switch um the uh the <laughs> help me with the the yeah, simpsons so it, the, sideshow one of Bob. the notable more obvious changes that they've made besides making it a musical a full-blown you know, times gilbert and sullivan-esque right. at times more greek theater-esque depends on the production that you see anyway besides making it a musical one of the big changes to the story is the change of the villain the villain in the original cape fury episode and that remains true through their the first two acts is sideshow bob of course if you know the simpsons you know sideshow bob long standing feud with the simpsons always is like on parole and trying to have some sort of enormous revenge on the Simpsons that gets foiled by uh, one of the kids. And and anyway, so that's the... He is the true villain for the Cape Fury episode. And then in this musical 80 years after the apocalypse change of this story that's now become like a big myth that they base new art on, the villain has become Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns is the great Simpsons villain. This big, old-time... 
episodes, they I think he's like more than a hundred years old, very rich, capitalist, mean, evil villain. He's he's a really famous Simpsons character. If you don't know the Simpsons, you would recognize his his art, what who, who he is, and you probably recognize the old steepling your fingers and going excellent. That comes right. from Mr. Burns. He's listed <laughs> as like in the top fifty, sometimes the top ten villains of all time in all of media. And right. he's not the villain for the original episode, like we've said, but in the new musical adaption, 80 years after the apocalypse in Act 3, Sideshow Bob character has been replaced by Mr. Burns. Right, right. So you get this kind of like, and the, and the play in general is like this this weird mix of Shakespeare and and a little bit of like kind of Lin-Manuel Miranda style singing and and musical in general. Um, so you get this kind of this 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 knowledge that theater has continued and theater has uh, well theater has both continued in this post-apocalyptic society and theater has also continued to play this role of helping process um, disaster, processing events without needing to stay strictly along the lines of truth <laughs> or not truth of fact, um, still telling a truth while, uh, while having the, the facts be a little bit, uh, wishy-washy. The, the, the last act of the play, uh, ends, ends with the musical. We don't get much more context except that the, the kind of last image of the play is, is lights come up for the first time. The play is a very dark play. I mean, lighting wise, it's also a dark comedy, but it's, uh, the, the, there's the campfire in the first scene. The second scene is lit by a skylight and, uh, the third scene finally gets this return of some lights, like Christmas lights it describes, yeah, or I some mean, stage lights. specifically electric lights, right? Not, not yeah. like candles and fires that make up the lighting for the first two acts, but electricity has returned. Yeah, yeah, and you get, yeah, the, the, the final image of the play is the cast doing a curtain call, the, in, the play within the play cast doing the curtain call, and uh, the guy who plays Mr. Burns is, like, running the lights on a, on a bike Classic attached to a treadmill. Classic treadmill power generator <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the broad sweep of the play. Three acts over 80-some years, um, uh, kind of tra- not so much tracking characters, because by the third act, the characters are somewhat gone. Right, isn't um, that interesting? Interesting. I mean, so we follow the same group of characters by and large, Act 1 and 2, across a seven-year time span, and we see how their lives have changed, how society has evolved. It's gone from living in the woods and these sort of non-communal, non-societal groups that band together to survive, and they're cooling things down in streams, and, and they've got couches out in the woods where they're living and all that stuff. And society has evolved past that by the Act 2, 7 years, and we we see that the characters now have jobs. They're entertainers in this new society. But by Act 3, 75 years later, I mean, all the characters we meet in 1 and 2, we have no reason to believe they're children. They're all adults of various ages. So by 80 years later, 75 years later in the post-apocalyptic world, I think we can assume they're dead. Yeah. No, I would agree. I, I, I was, you know, kind of trying to think if we would see any of them. And then I real quick ran the math. I was like, oh, there's almost no way we would see these people. No, in a world without medicine or anything. I mean, there's no way they live to 100. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So those. Yeah. So you say that it's not very character based, right? I mean, those people that we meet and whatever kind of relationship we establish with them, even that's a little unclear in Act 1 and 2, is left in the past. And what we're left with is only the society that we've been following and tracking the development of. And the the characters, the like pop culture characters as well. The that, that, story like, that's, itself, the Cape Fury yeah. story. 
And and it's just it's interesting to kind of set this reality of post nuclear meltdown in a very pop culture based society. What survives, right? Like what and and not only what survives, but how does it slowly morph into into a different type of shared history? Yeah, I, I think that's to me one of the most fascinating commentaries of this play and why I'm still thinking about it and probably will for a while. Uh, Ann Washburn uses the word um, exactitude. And in your description, Jackson, I think you use the word nostalgia. But I think you're both describing the same thing, which is through Acts 1 and 2, the, the way that these characters grasp on to the stories of their lives before the apocalypse. The play used the example of The Simpsons. I think that would hold true if you were talking about Friends or you were talking about in our day maybe Breaking Bad, whatever, that you're holding on to those stories from life before. They hold on to that. Again, Ann Washburn uses the word exactitude. They're trying to replicate the stories and the life exactly, especially in Act 1, where the challenge really is, can we remember line for line, scene for scene, detail for detail exactly what happened that carries yeah. into act two seven years later and it's it's again it's about exactitude or at least the appearance of they're all worried about losing their reputation if they stop accepting lines that people remember from the audience if they just you know make stuff up they're going to lose their reputation at the same time though they're playing with commercials and the questions about the commercials they're telling are really questions about is our society ready for this can we change this detail to meet it more and then of course by act three exactitude has been left way behind now it's about how yeah. do these myths from 80 years ago they really the simpsons episode of cape theory has become a myth of the society how do those <laughs> myths tell the story of our time now yeah yeah the, the the journey from that exactitude into the into or culture needing exactitude and and culture needing uh not now this is where this is where my vocabulary is failing me i've tried like in my mind a couple of times to find like what is what is it that that post society needs not closure interpretation maybe or um, you know what it reminds me of is hamilton I think that hmm. Hamilton is a sort of interesting example of the way that stories and myths change, that the, the kind of thing Anne Washburn is talking about, right? I mean, Hamilton the musical is not an exact telling <laughs> of the, the Alexander Hamilton story from American history. I mean— Frankly, it's not even really that close for right. all of the discussions about its historical <laughs> representation. There are some fairly major details and interpretations <laughs> layered onto the musical. It's great, but it is not the story of Alexander Hamilton from history. It's a right. story about politics now told in 1776. It's a story about culture now told in 1776. I mean, they got that great line, immigrants, we get the job done. I mean, that's a story yeah, about yeah. culture now, and they're using the the myth of the Hamilton story from 1776 to layer onto that now. And that really is what the Simpsons episode has become for that post-apocalyptic society. 
Exactly. Yeah. You. I mean, and you see it almost right away as as the opening. You know, we we have heard in the play. I mean, people probably know this episode too. I had not seen this episode prior to the play, so I was like reading the play, and we know in the play the the given events of of the Simpsons episode. Right. There's a uh, uh, the 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 characters are running from this person on parole. They they have to get go into witness protection. They're moved to a new place. That's not the case in the musical in Act Three. They the 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 inciting incident is not running uh, from from a criminal. It's a meltdown. The nuclear reactor is melting down and forces the family out of the town. While the town is burning, the family runs to this houseboat, and then this Mister Burns comes along, who is this kind of kind of real character, but also has a lot of lines that are maybe saying that it is the radiation that he embodies the radiation from the meltdown. So it's just well, and, a really and the character, interesting. Mister Burns, is like a character of capitalist greed. Notably, yeah. of course, he's the manager of the nuclear power plant that Homer Simpson works at through the majority of the Simpsons. I mean, he is sort of the physical human, human, quote unquote, yellow, amorphous, human-like <laughs> person that are the Simpsons, <laughs> human representation of the, the sort of system society that caused whatever unknown disaster caused the apocalypse of the play. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's I mean, it's fascinating to watch that, especially given the the arguments in Act Two, um, I think specifically of the arguments between characters like uh, Maria and Quincy, who have like two different um, understandings of what they're doing. Uh, Maria is a little bit more the uh, the argument that we need to like give meaning to what these characters are doing to reflect meaning on our moment. And Quincy is in more of the we, we are providing escape for people. Um, and, and entertainment for people to kind of remind them of what something was and just enjoy what something was. Yeah, the, the, so this is in Act 2. The the characters that we met in Act 1 plus a new character, Quincy, have banded together. They're part of a, a stat, they're part of a troupe that does the Simpsons episodes like we've described. They're in rehearsal, and they're ending up... What, what causes the debate, which I just love, I think it's a great playwriting detail, really smart of Anne Washburn to make the detail that they end up fighting over vastly unimportant. So yeah. unimportant, but it causes this major discussion. <laughs> That's brilliant. And the detail is the character playing Sideshow Bob gets out from under the car. If you know The Simpsons or you've watched the play, he's been clutched onto the bottom of their car because he's following them out into their witness protection houseboat. He has all this stuff happen to him while he's under the car. They drive through Cactus Field. They go over uh, speed bumps, et cetera, et cetera. So in the... In their stage version of that episode, he's climbing out from under the car, and the question is, oh, why don't we put some oil on his face, like hot oil? That'll be a really cool costuming makeup kind of effect for the character. Everybody agrees it's a good idea. Then the debate becomes, well, what if we just put some black stuff that kind of looks like mud and oil on it, or do we need to make it look exactly like hot engine oil, kind of reddish, viscous, right. and that becomes the debate. A exactitude um, of meaning, right? It's how, and so Maria's point is like, if you show that he's got hot oil on his face, you're talking about it, what he suffered, how the character, how much he's desperate to get Bart Simpson, so he's, hold on, even through all this hot oil, you're making a kind of a higher level commentary, providing meaning to his suffering under the car, whereas if you just put something black on his face to kind of represent engine oil, you're really just making a joke, you're making an entertaining, cartoonish kind of uh, fun moment. For the, yeah. yeah, right, and that's 
Quincy's point. So that ends up prompting this larger debate about what is the purpose of doing these Simpsons episodes, of doing, obviously, the higher commentary theater storytelling in our world. Right, right. And and, and that, I mean, throughout the act, there's all these great... Um, I think you're right. The, I love the writing in that second act. It is, you know, it's been it's been about a year because you know COVID and everything. Maybe a little longer since I've been in a rehearsal process, and it's just so real. Like this is these are the conversations you have in rehearsal process. Um, and 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 that's the real struggle that these characters are in, especially given the given circumstances. Is what do our audiences need? You mentioned the 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 way that they're trying to treat the commercials, right? Then and, and one of the characters brings the the option: Are we ready? for things to be status again. Um, and I, th- I think the commercial is about, like, bath salts. Um, yeah, and they end up having a similar kind of debate about the what wine they're going to reference. And yeah. is the audience ready for this type of wine, or are we still on this type of wine? And again, it's that kind of little detail of the performance which prompts a larger discussion around the ethics and the purpose and what what stories are and how they evolve to serve the audience. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it also I I just really appreciate the world building in act 2. The like the, the 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 economy that has been set up with people who have words, right? These people who have uh these these memories of the time before, uh of 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 words that were said, words that were impactful to people and those words have meaning. That continues, you know, that continues to be a part of society is that words have meaning. And in, and in this case the, these crews are are kind of uh lobbying for rights, buying each other out just to have the words that can connect them to that before time. Well, and you mentioned the economy, you brought it up briefly in the synopsis, but there's this great detail of the world. I mean, I, I can't imagine having an imagination like in Washburn. This is such a fully developed world in just a few short pages of Act 2. But in the economy of the world, so these shows travel town to town. Like we've said, there's West Wing shows we've heard about, Shakespeare shows we've heard about, and Simpson shows. We imagine that there's many, many more. But all these troops travel town to town, and they set up these booths, basically, where audiences can come and say, I remember a line from this Simpsons episode, or I I don't know, maybe they can submit from any Simpsons episode, however it works. And the troupe then will buy the line from them to use to make their replication of the episode more exact. Again, that exactitude. And that is fascinating, the economy of words. And but but really more than that, it's an economy of memory, isn't it? I mean, it's an economy of I remember this. And by putting it in, we can all remember this. Right. Yeah, yeah. The and 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 there's the 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 pivot point of there being no more electricity is the the I feel like the catalyst for that to come about, right? Like you, you, you like as you as you're, as you were talking about Shakespeare, and even when Shakespeare came up, and it was like, well, there's there's books around of Shakespeare. Surely, you know, someone scavenged through a library and they got they got a Shakespeare book. But if you really think about it, there's almost no way <laughs> to get a Simpsons episode post you know, post electric shutdown. <laughs> if all the, all the ways that like come into my mind to try to get it are like are are online or are digital. Um, and so so the the really kind of 
compelling uh, desire of this culture to maintain something, even in the face of it all being lost and all just being in people's heads, um, really drives drives both the economy of the Act 2, but then also the journey we go through all the way to Act 3. Right. And so pivoting a little bit to just talk about how the play is structured and relates to itself, the thing that is kind of odd and memorable about the play ends up being that the entirety of act three is a it's a play within a play i mean as much as you can get a play within a play this is a play within a play a good old-fashioned hamlet style play within a play it is the full act three from beginning to end is we assume characters from this world, but we don't meet any of those characters as themselves. We only meet them as the Simpsons characters that they are playing and singing for. And so we all we have to understand the new society that's been created 75 years later is this episode, uh, this adaption, really, this this loose adaption of this episode of the kind of the basic tenets of the myth of this episode. And we, we've left all the characters we've met and their individual character journeys behind. And so what in Act 3 is like a culmination of the story we've been following? Like, is it a, is, is Act 3 a new story in and of itself? Is it the next step in a, in a, in a plot? Yeah, I mean, that, that the, the whole boat scene, right, where Mr. Burns is kind of uh, slowly... I mean, it, for, first of all, something new <laughs> from, from The Simpsons is that three of the family die <laughs> on the boat. And that just that just doesn't happen in The Simpsons episode. It's all kind of cleverly uh, solved by Bart, who gets uh, gets Sideshow Bob to sing a song instead of killing them. Um, but but like death is 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 a real important part of the Act Three one, and I think I think that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing, and we I mean we 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 know all of the characters we've been around have died. You know how, whether it was in the moment in the theater that we saw when the people broke in and started shooting, or whether it was through time, all the characters. Characters we knew have died. Yeah, so this um, is a, a quote from Act Three. Again, this would be sung. Uh, this is a Bart Simpson singing. Bart Simpson is like the protagonist of this musical about the Simpsons. So he sings, This is the part where I say goodbye. This is my final lullaby. Everyone I love has gone. I'll have joined them by the dawn. Yes, I'll have vanished by the dawn. Earlier he sings, I'm wet with rain. I'm drenched with my tears. I've been alive what feels like a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, and you have the you have the struggle of Bart then too the struggle of Bart um, the struggle of Bart as to whether or not he's going to fight longer after his his family has died or whether he's just going to let Mr. Burns kill him um, and so he can join his family again and and what I think you you see the whatever this fictional society is you know still carrying the weight of the disaster and deciding right like uh, the the struggle you know you know you assume this audience identifies with. Uh, the struggle of deciding whether to keep fighting or not in this this kind of post-world. And and so in the final moments of the musical, here is just a little snippet of what Bart sings. And again, I'm reading this because the play within a play, because it is the whole of Act 3, it has to tell a story about the world that we've been following. I mean, the... As weird as it is to say, the protagonist of the play really is like the society. <laughs> it's right. like what's going to happen to this 
to the human race in America or to how they assemble themselves as people, what stories they tell, what's going to happen to that? Because the characters that we've met that might be protagonists, might be on a journey, are dead a long time. So it's yeah. really about what who the society is going to be, what decisions the society is going to make. So how does the Simpsons musical that they do uh, tell that story? So this is what Bart sings near the end of the act, near the end of the play. He sings, and now that I've lost everything, now that everyone I love is gone, all I have left is everything. The river carries me on. Though every fear is facing me, and I do not know what next will be, I cannot know what next I'll see. I'm running forward anyway. I'm not afraid to meet the day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's the, and then, and then the day then too, as the representation at the end with the, with the light coming in and, and the, the really hopeful message that this team is, is trying to tell. Um, it, it, I mean, I keep, I keep saying this as if the, the fictional society are the only ones to benefit from, from this, this message at the end of the play, but we're, we as the audience identify with that too, right? This is a, a common human, uh, uh, decision to make, right? To, to greet the next day, to keep pushing through. And I think that's certainly true of society, right? Like, do you... How does society react to a moment like this where its under moorings are ripped apart? Is there something worth saving in it? How do you maintain that thing worth saving when the, 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 the pieces that held it up are gone? Yeah, I mean, as a commentary about what human society might be after a post-apocalypse, I mean, even the fact that the society still exists 80 years after a disaster like that is part of the story, right? We jump forward 75, I keep saying 80 years, but 75 years, <laughs> and it, we jump forward 75 years, and the fact that there are still people around is incredible. And the next part of the story is, oh, and they're organized enough to cooperate to accomplish a task. That's part of it. Oh, and they're organized enough and... Um, you know, they're not savages, right? They haven't degraded, uh, digressed, degraded. That's not what I mean to say. Regressed. Devolved. Devolved or regressed <laughs> rather than trying to combine those words. They haven't devolved or regressed to being uh, warring uh, survivalists, basically. They have art. They've, they, they have new pieces of art, not just recreations of old pieces, but taking old myths and creating something new. And so you learn all of that, that the society is still around, and that the message of their art, at least the only example we get, is what's what's next is scary. We don't know what's next for, you imagine that they're saying the human race, their society, but we're not going to be afraid to face it. We've made decisions to move ahead, to move into the next day. Which is even, like, adds the weight of the compelling to that bike image at the end, to the lights coming up at the end, right? We're, it's going to be scary because we're figuring out how to bring electricity back. And all of, like, the, the whole, I mean, there's a couple of really kind of terrifying, gut-wrenching scenes in Act 2 where the characters are dealing with the reality that all around them there's nuclear reactors melting down. And who knows exactly how much of it is affecting them. One of the characters, I think it's Gibson, is like slowly won is wondering whether he's slowly losing his mind um, as a result of, of the radiation in, in the world. So there's that fear, right? As, as, as electricity comes back, what are we going to open up into? Well, and, what and are we going to remember? Sort of starts with that, too. I think it's in Act 1 where they tell the story of 
one of this group of people tells the story of meeting somebody in a Walmart or whatever. And this somebody that they met was aware enough, I think because they had a friend that worked at a power plant, a nuclear power plant, was aware enough that there are backup generators to keep all this nuclear material from poisoning everything around it. And that the backup generators will run for a while, but eventually they'll run out of fuel power and they'll need to be refueled. And so this random person that this person met in a Walmart had a plan to basically get up all the gasoline, all the other fuel sources that he could to keep this generator around for as long as he possibly could keep it alive to keep the nuclear material from radioactively poisoning poisoning everything around it. Anyway, the the story goes, this really specific visceral story of this guy who's going to do that at a gas station and he's filling up his stuff and he realizes that he's it's the unknown that he's not going to be able to do it because he doesn't know whether the generators have already turned off and thus right. it's poisonous. It's radioactive to go. And so he decides he cannot go and refuel the generators. Basically, he's too scared because of the the knowledge, the unknown. What is going to happen to me if I go? I don't know whether they're on or off. And so I'm too afraid to go. And so that I think you're right to point out that that's a nice sweep of the play is from the unknown being a paralyzing, preventing thing, can't move forward because of the unknown, into the story of The Simpsons musical, which is Bart <laughs> moving ahead into the unknown um, bravely, willingly. Right. And, and yeah, and, and alone, <laughs> right? And alone. Like, and alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that, I mean, act one in general has all these building blocks that, that, that come in throughout the play. It's really masterfully kind of weaved into it. Cause not all of it is Simpsons either. Like there's, there's things in that third act that are specific to Cape Fear, the movie, right? The movie that the episode was based on. Those things basically are not touched on in act two. And yet you can see that Act 3, uh, the musical in Act 3, is drawing on just a wide sweep of pop culture. It's well, amazing. Isn't that that... what's great about choosing The Simpsons? I mean, I, I think yeah. I, off the top of my head, I think that, it, I mean, at least for me, if she had chosen to base the play around Friends, I would have gotten a lot more of the references. I'm only loosely aware right. of The Simpsons. I've seen some of it. I think I told Jackson before we started recording, I can bandy about with the most casual <laughs> Simpsons watcher. And anybody beyond that's going to know a lot more about it than me. I know Friends pretty well, though. And, and so if she had used Friends, I would have gotten more of the references. But what The Simpsons has that Friends doesn't have or other similar sitcoms is that The Simpsons is a, um, a depository for so much else in culture. I mean, The Simpsons so brilliantly bases so many of their episodes on movies, involves so many incredible cultural references. If you watch The Simpsons, you're watching like a mishmash of everything that has defined American culture since right. it came out and into the future. The episode in question, Cape Fury, being a great example. It's based on a Robert De Niro movie from a long time ago, which is based on another movie, which is based on a book. I mean, it, <laughs> The Simpsons is a great choice because it in itself is sort of an adaption cartoon. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a, a, a chain, you know, if you, if you really wanted to think, yeah, you just, I mean, you just laid out the chain of it, right? If you really want to think about how this story that ends up being told in the last act has evolved since the book, <laughs> right? And who had to think it was important and what elements they thought were important to put into a movie, to put into a movie, to put into a series, to put into a play, um, is, 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 you know, it's, it's part of that, that kind of 
long line of humans as storytellers the and and what's and what humans think is important to continue to tell in stories and change uh based on culture based on uh, catastrophe based on you know uh, what what what's what particular tragedy has befallen the human race yeah well this is not really related to the text of the script but as an interesting point the simpsons continues the story the show the simpsons continues the story past the play by referencing back to the fact of the that the play exists in a later simpsons episode than the play came Whoa. out and had such success <laughs> the simpsons then reverse reference this play i mean i mean that is the simpsons i think you were exactly right to point out that the simpsons is sort of a marker for the progression of human storytelling and this play is a marker for what might happen to human storytelling into the future if you have some sort of great big disaster that befell the human race and that in that way it's this 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 kind of homage to theater too like the the power of theater the power of storytelling i mean act 2 and 3 are just viscerally that right like act 1 sets us into this world of 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 kind of reverence for simpsons and for storytelling in general but for simpsons but act 2 and 3 is kind of on a fifth level underneath this play, this love letter to theater in general. And, and to how- like the history of human evolution. I mean, I think about what what I made the relation to watching or, or reading this play to something that is more familiar to me would be to like the evolution of Bible stories, right? Hmm. Like the, the, the idea of exactitude. We know that for a long time, Bible stories were kept around by orally telling them out loud and getting them exactly right, nearly word for word. And then somebody wrote them down, probably by collecting a lot of different people's word-for-word versions of the story. That's kind of what you see in Act 2. And then you get Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which has no attempt at all (laughs) to word-for-word replicate it, is a commentary on the culture of the time, like... Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is exactly a musical of the late 20th century and really nothing else. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And so it, it, it just it occurred to me that this play captures the way that really, really old stories in our society, where you could think about the Greek plays, right? Really yep. old myths Fables. told very specifically, adapted into plays, nowadays adapted into further plays. Yeah. Yeah, no, in, in in that way it really does kind of do this 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 fun mental exercise, right? Um it, it not only asks us what we would do in this sort of future scenario, but what also it it pays attention to what we have done. And when you kind of wake up to both of those things together, it, it provides so much introspection <laughs> for for the way that we have engaged unconsciously and consciously in the art of storytelling throughout all of human history. In the midst of a really huge visual experience, right? I mean, we've talked about all the different commentary and sort of academic storytelling ways that the thing is talking about, but the, <laughs> the play is a visual trip. I mean, yeah. watching people in a campfire in the woods, then they're wearing Simpsons costumes and ha- they roll out a car like in Greece yep. they roll out a living room set in act two and then in act three they're in full Simpsons masked get up it depends on your production I know that the Almeida theater production really based it heavily on like Greek style tragic costuming I mean a huge yep. visual trip and all the while you walk into the play assuming you don't know anything else about it with the title Mr. Burns a post electric play let's set aside the subtitle for now what do you think about the title Mr. Burns, <laughs> who is the reference to the villain? Yeah. Um, 
I think, I mean, there's there's a couple layers going on. Uh, I think the importance of the character switch at the end is important. I think there's something interesting, or switching away from Sideshow Bob to Mr. Burns and this act of kind of unifying your antagonists into one... Uh, 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 avatar of an of antagonism. I think that's a that's an interesting theme to be brought out of it. I think also the I mean the the chemical fires of a nuclear plant melting down. I think that plays into that choice and makes it really kind of ironic um, uh, that or or not ironic but highly symbolic to have the 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 final villain that this post nuclear meltdown society uh, names to be Mr. Burns. Um, that's that's that that's a pretty powerful uh, villain character to be embodying that sort of uh, both both this this uh, memorable character from from a myth, but also the the uh, the pain of a, of a physical catastrophe. Yeah, we sort of get the importance of Mr. Burns as a villain character to the society in that act, too. They're talking about all the different episodes and who owns the rights to all the different episodes. We've talked about how weird that is. And they're discussing whether they need to sell a show in order to keep their company afloat. And they mentioned selling a specific episode. I don't remember the title. And one of the characters, Gibson, talks about how if they sell that one, they're not going to have any th- any of their episodes they won't have Mr. Burns as a character anymore that the character will drop out of the repertoire and how the audiences love Mr. Burns now you imagine they don't love him as, as like a positive figure he's the villain so they love having that villain in the the stuff that they come to see and we've talked about it. the villain is the representation of capitalism is the representation of greed is the representation of the nuclear power plants and so already companies while they're trying to exactly replicate the episodes are making decisions about the repertoire based on what's going to serve the needs of the audience we want to tell simpson stories that have a nuclear power plant manager as the villain right <laughs> in this yeah. society destroyed by some sort of major disaster at least involving nuclear power plants right right and the slow the, yeah just the slow evolution of what characters are important what themes are important um and and all the way from from act or or, or uh, yeah act one you see that right like different people needed different things in the stories uh, they remember different things they bring different things to the table as the thing that resonated with them some of them pretend to remember the things from the story so it's pretty clear that it didn't really resonate with them before but by act two they're all on board like they know the importance Importance of the story, they know the importance of these characters, and are and are looking for ways to keep keep them alive. Yeah, and 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 in that way, the story of this episode of The Simpsons is almost the protagonist too. I mean, in terms of what what in the play is going on a journey from page one to the last page, the society post-apocalyptic is probably the best, most academic test answer. But really, Cape Fury as a as a story is going through a real major journey too, right? I mean, from the very first line of the script, they are saying, no, this is what happened. No, this is what happened. And then, and the final image, it's a big musical where power is coming back on and the story has right. been changed in so many different ways. I mean, the the evolution of the story is the core journey of the play too. I think that's close to all the time we have for this particular script. Uh, if, if there is more to be said out there, I, well, there's certainly more to be said out there. There's so much in this play that's also, I mean, it's a viscerally funny play and also uh, a very touching play in some scenes. A lot of characters are going through a lot. There's a lot of good, like, 
character growth around fear, around community. So there's, there's, there's tons more to be said about, about this play. And we'd love to keep having the conversation with all of you out there in podcast land. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about Mr. Burns, a post-electric play with you. Absolutely. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, it'd be a huge help to us if you'd recommend this podcast to your friends and family. Uh, you can do that by sending them to where we're hosted, Podbean, or you can send them to Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're in all those places, and we'd love to get listens on all of those places. So you can send them that way. An easy way for them to connect with us, both to see the plays that are coming out if they want to read ahead, and to just find a way to click and play the episode to be connected with us on Facebook. That's where we both share. Uh, you know, the Wednesday before, we'll tell you what play we're talking about so you can read it if you have it or watch it. And then there's a link every Monday to the new episode right as it comes out. And all you got to do is click and play. So that's an easy way, too, if you want to connect with us there. Yeah. So until next week, when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. See you.